Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Litsur. Noir City, the world's most popular film noir festival, returns to San Francisco's majestic Castro Theater for its 16th edition, January 26th to February 4th, 2018. This year's program, Film Noir from A to B, presents 24 classic noirs as they were experienced upon their original release, pairing a top-tier Studio A with a shorter, low-budget second feature, or B-film. All but one of the films will be presented in glorious 35mm. Some of the double bills planned include I Wake Up Screaming and Among the Living from 1941, The Blue Dahlia and Night Editor from 1946, and from 1953, The Big Heat and Wicked Woman. The Film Noir Foundation's latest restoration will receive its world re-premiere on Saturday night, February 3rd, The Man Who Cheated Himself, an independently made noir thriller from 1950, shot on location in San Francisco. Thanks to the generosity of Noir City patrons and FNF donors, the Foundation was able to independently fund the restoration of this film, starring Lee J. Cobb, Jane Wyatt, and John Dahl, after the only existing print was lost to Vinegar Syndrome. A pair of FNF-funded 35mm preservations will screen together that afternoon as well, Southside 1-1000 and The Underworld Story. Returning as producer and host of Noir City is author and impresario Eddie Muller, founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, and the man known internationally as the Czar of Noir. SF Film last month named Muller to its pantheon of essential SF cinema figures. Early in 2017, Muller debuted as the host of Turner Classic Movies' new franchise, Noir Alley, providing him with a national platform to introduce a fresh audience to film noir and the work of the Film Noir Foundation. And now, let's talk with our guest for this month. Joining us now is Foster Hirsch from the Board of Directors of the Film Noir Foundation. He is a professor of film at Brooklyn College, and he is the author of numerous books, including Detours and Lost Highways, A Map of Neo-Noir, and Otto Preminger, The Man Who Would Be King. He has also hosted screenings at many Noir City film festivals, as well as many other screenings and events all across the country and internationally as well. Foster, thanks for joining us here on Noir Talk. Glad to be here. In addition to the books we mentioned just now, you're also the author of Film Noir, The Dark Side of the Screen, which was one of the very first books about film noir that was published in America. The original edition is from 1981, with a revised edition in 2001. There have been a couple of hundred books, apparently, about film noir published since 1981, since your book first came out. So I wanted to talk with you about how it developed over the years, how film noir developed over the years, from something discussed mainly or only among film critics and scholars to the much more mainstream recognition it has today. When I started the book, I believe my contract was in 1977. This was pre-video, pre-DVD, and so the only way to see the films was either, either at revival theaters in New York, and I haunted the Thalia Theater, the old Thalia on Upper Broadway, uh, because they had a film war season while I was doing my research. Also, I had to go to the Library of Congress to see a lot of films. And I, I remember asking the publisher if there would be a travel budget so that I could see the films in Washington. And the publisher said, well, Mr. Hirsch, we have no travel budget allotted for your book because we feel the topic is of very limited interest. 
it was it was that obscure. Uh, they had I don't know why they even signed me up, feeling that they weren't going to sell anything, and they they had no travel budget. I had to go to Washington quite a number of times, but it was always at my own expense. The publisher offered nothing because it was a an academic and rarefied topic. Isn't that hard to believe all these years later? A labor of love, for sure, is what, what that's, it sounds that's, like. That's, that's, what they were, that's what they were telling me. And the book was published in 1981. It's still in print, and I'm still getting royalties. So they were wrong. I wanted to go back and start with the origins of where the term first came from, then leading up to the atmosphere or kind of the status of noir at the time when you were researching and writing your book, which, as you just mentioned, is vastly different from, uh, was vastly different back then from what it is today. So if we go back to the very beginning, the um, often told tale of where the term film noir came from, it was uh, French critics who were unable to see any Hollywood movies during World War II because of the German occupation. They forbade any uh, foreign films from being shown. So in 1946, they suddenly, 45, 46, they suddenly started seeing all of these Hollywood movies from the last few years. And they started noticing certain patterns, in particular with the crime movies of the themes and the visual style was kind of different from what came before. So the first generally credited place or article for the term film noir as we know it today was a 1946 article by a critic named Nino Frank. Um, that article, the English title, I believe, is A New Police Genre, The Criminal Adventure. And then the first book on film noir was uh, about a decade later, 1955. That was called A Panorama of American Film Noir, 1941 to 1953. That was also a French book by the authors Ramon Borde and Etienne Chaumetan. Uh, and that book was actually not published in an American translation, an English translation, until about 15 years ago, surprisingly, about 2002. But a very influential book there. So that was the, those were some of the earlier texts that the French critics were, were writing. And then it wasn't really until the 1960s, especially the 1970s, that there was more coverage in English and American film circles. So can you tell us some about that, about the time in that early to mid-70s when you first started I guess, thinking about film noir? Or when was it that you first really became aware of this as a concept that was starting to grow in interest or that started having kind of an interesting angle about American films that hadn't been covered before? I, I believe uh, it was during series that were, that, uh, that were being shown, again, at the Failure Theater, and it was called Film Noir. And I remember going up to see a number of the films Double Indemnity, and the classic ones that we now identify uh, as canonic to film noir. And I remember thinking, gee, these films are really good and really interesting, and I think I'd like to try to write a book about them. And it was very hard to find any primary information. I know that my research was very limited, and it, it was very little that was being, that had been written. But I had two articles on my desk the whole time I was writing. One of them by Paul Schrader called, is it Notes on Film Noir? Yes, Notes on Film Noir from Film Comment, uh, 1972. Brilliant article. I, it, it's, it is so concise, and it, it, it articulates the points that make noir distinctive so clearly that it was just there, it's almost like my Bible, and then there was another article more abstrusely written, but also perceptive and helpful by uh, Raymond Dornia, who has a, a more clogged style than Paul Schrader, called, I believe, Painted Black. And for the most part, 
those were my published sources. There was very little written about it at the time. And as I mentioned, the publisher didn't think there was any market for the book. So it was very much a marginal kind of film studies, and it was academic. It was considered for a for a, 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 a university audience only, not for the general public. And I think probably the general public wouldn't have known the term back then. Filmgoers and cinephiles would have, but not the general public. Yeah, that was another question I had. So at that time, the mid, I guess mid-70s, when you were really starting to, to think about writing the book, the term film noir was, I guess, still at that time more of a niche thing in terms of cinephiles, film critics, scholars, they were starting to talk about it, but the general public maybe didn't really know or hadn't heard of what that was or what it really meant. I think, I believe that to be accurate. Film noir was a term that I knew and film people interested in film knew and programmers at places at leading repertory houses like The Failure certainly knew and identified a category of American crime film called film noir. So the term was in use, but it was limited use. And it was always cited as of French origin. Film noir, dark film, black film, the French who noticed it. The French are always very vigilant about our popular culture. They don't like us much, but they like our movies. So it make, it actually makes a lot of sense to me that the term was coined by French critics after having watched a group of American films and noticing, wait a minute, there's something different in these films from the usual American pattern. You know, there's something darker and more ominous. And the French are very perceptive about our popular culture. So they got it before we did, in a sense. And they identified this group of films, this collection of films, as having a distinctive visual and thematic pattern. Do you think the fact that they were start- suddenly starting to see them all at once, like f- four or five years worth of films, all kind of rushing together, that that kind of contributed to it? That they started noticing, oh wait, there's really a difference here, as opposed to if it had just been year by year, maybe the the kind of thematic patterns, maybe it wouldn't have been as readily identified, or maybe it would have taken a little bit longer, perhaps. I think that's absolutely accurate. The fact that the during the occupation, American films had been banned from Paris caused them to be released after the war in groups, and it was the fact that they were seeing a number of films that they could identify the patterns much more quickly than if the films had been available one at a time during the war. So I suppose the French owe the German occupation a debt of gratitude for that and nothing else. <laughs> the um, And as you mentioned already, the I was going to ask what reactions you got from your publisher and from colleagues when you decided to write your book about film noir. Was there... Um, was there anyone who said to you at that time, like, oh, that's a great idea. People are hearing more about this concept. There's going to be an audience. Or was everyone saying, whoa, nobody knows what this is. Nobody's going to be interested. Good luck. No, it was the, it was the latter. <laughs> um, nobody, nobody thought the, the project would have wide appeal. And the publisher didn't believe in it. I'm surprised. I'm, I'm surprised they published it. And they allowed me to publish with a lot of photos, all at my own expense, by the way. <laughs> So in every, in every, and then when it started to sell, uh, they were surprised. And after a while, they said, well, you know, you're our best seller other than Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> and I believe 
to this day, that is true about the, the publisher who now does the book, DeCouple. It was originally A.S. Barnes, and they're out of business. I guess they made a lot of wrong calls, but DeCouple was still around, and they published the paperback for decades now. And they told me that next to Ulysses S. Grant's memoir, um, Dark Side, is their biggest and longest-lasting seller. Claim to fame. That's <laughs> uh, pretty good company to be in. <laughs> yes, I've I was very flattered and surprised, but it would have shocked the original A.S. Barnes publisher. They saw it definitely just as a niche topic of minor interest, a curiosity. I don't think people at the time realized, I didn't either, the degree to which film noir would become part of the popular culture, not only film culture, but the culture at large. Everybody knows film noir now. And film noir festivals and the Film Noir Foundation, enormously successful and with an outreach that's growing and growing and growing. They're from the classic era. The, the, and we can debate this whether it's a genre or a movement, but the style known as film noir has, has lasted longer with greater popular and critical interest than any other style of Hollywood filmmaking. It seems over time that the interest in it has only grown. Um looking up the number of books on film noir published in the U.S. Uh, ever since yours, there were it looks like there were a few more that came out throughout the 1980s after yours in 1981. Um, there were a couple of others that came out around the time of yours. Um, there was the film noir encyclopedic reference to the American style the, that's had numerous editions. The first edition was published in 1979, edited by uh, Alan Silver and Elizabeth Ward. And then one other one around the same time as yours was published was uh, Robert Audison and his uh, reference guide to American film noir. I, I, know, I know that uh, uh, Robert Audison and Bob's a good friend and very generous to all of us with his collect, uh, encyclopedic collection of noir titles. I, ha I did not read his book. I think it was published around the time of mine. The, the noir encyclopedia is 1979. My manuscript probably would have been turned in to the publisher because it took a long time for A.S. Barnes to publish a book around the time that the encyclopedia was first published. So I might have surely looked at it as I was doing edits after it came back from the publisher, but it wasn't something that was on my desk as I was writing because I, I believe it had not been available at that time. Of course, it's an invaluable reference. The, you mentioned earlier that um, from seeing some film noir series, that was how you started, decided to, to write a book about it. Were, um, had you talked to anyone else at that time, like any colleagues, or was there some any ideas in the air of, oh, this is kind of getting more attention, there should be a book, or did you just have the idea and say, well, let's see what's out there, and oh, there's nothing, so maybe I should go ahead and <laughs> write about this? It, uh, really, it was the latter. I, I thought these films are really good and interesting, and then I looked up and saw that there had been nothing uh, in, in book form published, so I thought that was a, a good opportunity for me. But it was not something that was discussed. It was very much a marginal topic at that time.
it looks like from the the publishing list then in the 1980s after your book was first published there were there were a few more and then it looks like there was really a sharp increase in the number of texts published about film noir around 20 to 25 years ago the early to mid 1990s so from your experience after your book was published and then uh, has had a lot of success since then. Was it still kind of a niche inter- interest in the 1980s, or was it really starting to gain kind of more popular recognition around that time, say, in the mid to late 80s, around that time period? I think what happened is that film noir continued to be made. Neo-noir. Uh, what, <clears throat> what year is Body Heat? That's 81 when it was released, I believe. 81. Yeah. Okay, that was, a, that was a landmark case because when it was released, reviewers and, and fans began to talk about its indebtedness to the old style film noir, the classic film noir era, that the story patterns and the character types, though in color and the style of the film, was different, but it harked back to the patterns of an earlier time. So it, it is what we, I guess, would now call a neo-noir. But then there were a number of films after Body Heat that had the same story pattern. And so that those new films, I think, aroused interest in the classic era films. Okay, so from the community of film scholars and critics, then growing out to filmmakers and taking that influence uh, into their own work. Absolutely. Filmmakers, <clears throat> the, 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 the uh, film school educated generation of filmmakers knew their film noir. They knew film noir. Well, Paul Schrader is a case uh, in point. They knew their film noir as, as well as maybe in some cases better than a number of academics. And it was because they introduced noir motifs into their own work that I think the concept of noir began to spread to the general public. I think people who weren't around at the time don't really know what a big hit Body Heat was and how much interest that inspired in the noir style. And it was recognized right away, as, as you say, as um, something that was bringing back something that was old, but in a, in a new way, in a more modern Absolutely. Um, setting. Absolutely recognized right away as in the noir mode. I don't know that it was called neo-noir or post-noir at the time, but it certainly in, it initiated a cycle of films based on the storytelling patterns and the character types of the old noir. And there was another one I looked up. Um, there was, of course, the noir parody, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin. That was uh, from 1982 that uses the clips from all these old, almost 20 old noir films. And um, I looked up a couple of the reviews from the time of that movie to see if they used that term, film noir. And some of them did, some of them didn't. Um, the New York Times actually didn't mention film noir at all. They just called it a private eye parody. Um, Variety did mention film noir in passing, and the Washington Post said just the cinematography. They said the cinematography parodies film noir, but I don't think any of them said all of these clips are taken from film noir movies and they're brought up to uh, the modern times. So I guess they figured readers of um, movie reviews would have heard the term, but wouldn't be maybe wouldn't be so familiar with it that they would identify all of those old films as belonging to that style or movement. I suspect that, that that's accurate, that, the, that if a, a reviewer in a popular journal or magazine 
or newspaper would have used film noir, he or she might not have expected most of the readers to know at that time. Right, and just as a passing reference, they could work that in, but with um, I mean, with movie reviews in general, you don't have a lot of space to talk about stuff, so uh, like two or three paragraph digression into <laughs> defining what film noir is would probably yeah, that, not that work. W- that, wouldn't, that wouldn't have been possible, but probably some of the reviewers thought it might have been necessary <laughs> to identify what it was for the general public, but they wouldn't have had the space for it. Right, so just it seems some of them had it as kind of a passing reference that maybe some people would notice, maybe not, but you didn't really have to know what it was to get the gist of what they were talking about. I think by, I think it's in 1982, you could not have counted on a general readership knowing film noir. A few years later, that changed. But 81, 82, still something that was fresh and just being discovered. And the reactions at that time, um, after your book was published, what um, what was your experience with how, with what the reactions were in terms of reader interest and other people contacting you to talk about it, or what was uh, what was that like back then? I'm happy to say that the book the book was a success, and the Barnes, for all of their hesitation about even signing me up and not giving me any money to work on it, produced a beautiful book with a lot of pictures on on thick paper, and so. The book made noir seem visually enticing and attractive, which of course it is, and the encyclopedia had some wonderful images too. And I think that those images aroused a lot of interest. And then from there, other historians and and writers got interested in the subject, and it it, uh, spread, it mushroomed. But the encyclopedia and Dark Side were really the beginning. And this, of course, was at a time where, as you mentioned, it was uh, not always easy to see all these movies, and you certainly didn't have an internet where you could look them up and find all these images from them or anything like that either. No internet, no DVD. As I say, I had to depend on film screenings in repertory houses in New York and Washington, D.C., an invaluable resource, the Library of Congress. There was nothing, no other place at the time in the pre-DVD world to see old films for sure, for certain, except for the Library of Congress. So then as interest grew in film noir over the 80s, it looks like there was really, as I maybe mentioned earlier, there was really a big burst of publication of new books about film noir starting around 20, 25 years ago, the early to mid-1990s. So what do you think accounts for... Um, for that period when it really started becoming more known to the general public, maybe a combination of growing awareness over the 80s and then with VCRs becoming more widespread, you could see the older movies more, more television screenings, or maybe a combination of all those things? Certainly a combination of all those things. Probably the most significant is the quality of the films themselves. They're really good, and people recognize that, but they're really good in a particular way. Some of the older genres that don't get made anymore, the westerns and the musical, musicals, for instance, have tones or thematic concerns that don't play well with the contemporary audience, whereas noir doesn't seem to date. It has a very cynical view of human behavior, and in our jaded, washed-up world, that sort of cynicism has taken hold It's part of the general culture. It's part of film culture. So in a strange way, though, the black and white films are not 
films of today, the, the themes of the films and the cynical, jaded tones of the films have not dated. And I think that's probably the reason that, that noir is the most popular of all the studio-era styles of filmmaking. Would, would you agree that it's the most popular? I think so, yeah, um, in terms of general awareness. For young, audience, and... for young audiences, young people like film noir. It feels contemporary to them. It doesn't feel sentimental or stuck in the past. It doesn't have values that people can't take seriously anymore. It doesn't seem corny. It doesn't seem old-fashioned or to represent the morality of another era or another culture. The sarcasm it, and the cynicism definitely, I think, appeals sarcasm, to modern cynicism. You know, exactly. Sarcasm, cynicism, all of those qualities resonate with the millennial audience. So these films seem with it and hip and trendy, even though aspects of their filmmaking style are no longer the way films are made. But the underlying tones and qualities and characteristics of the film seem modern. And I think that accounts for why film noir proliferates in terms of film studies, of, of film um, festivals, the Film Noir Foundation itself, and books, as you say, how many hundreds now? I think so, yeah. It's, uh, the Library of Congress search turned up at least more than 200, if I did the search correctly. Well, there you have it. It's because, the, because film noir doesn't seem old hat. It seems surprisingly and refreshingly and excitingly new and up to the minute. As you say, the, the cynicism uh, plays with the, with the young audience. Whereas, you know, the old-fashioned Hollywood morality of the, the, the humanistic films, those have, have a quality of having dated. Film noir doesn't have that. Do you think also the fact that film noir being as, uh, I don't want to say necessarily amorphous, but um, being as not clear-cut as some of these other genres or styles of movies, like a Western, a musical, war movie, those are clear-cut. You either are or you aren't. But with film noir, there's something more uh, kind of diffuse about it. It's, um, there are scales of it. And do you think that fact has also helped or maybe accounts for some of the lagging time that it took from when people were talking about it in, say, the 1970s, then it wasn't really until more into the 80s and even into the 90s that it, the interest really picked up and it became more widely known, that it just took kind of a while because it was a little hard for people to wrap their heads around what exactly it was? I'm not sure I, I agree with that. I think... I think true film noir, classic film noir, is very specific in its style, its character types, its dialogue, its themes, you know, its narrative uh, patterns. But there's a hesitation call, to call it a genre, more a style, and as a style, it migrates. So you can have a noir western, even a noir musical, you know, a noir war film. But we've had debates about this in the Film Noir Foundation, and we call that term noir-stained, where you have elements of noir that can appear in all kinds of different movies, but I think you have to be careful of diluting it so that it, it becomes too widespread. And you can find noir elements <coughs> in everything. <coughs> I'm not sure about that. Classic noir, the double indemnity pattern, is very specific. And maybe it accounts the um, 
the arguments, the debates and everything and the, the different scales of noir, maybe that accounts in part for how long it's been since this um, explosion of interest in it uh, and how it just keeps on going for at least 20 years now that because it's not just here are X number of movies or here is something where you immediately recognize it or don't recognize it, there is more to talk about over time. There's, you can extend it to not, other types of films. It's not just, you know, it, no, exactly. It's not just a finite number of movies. We keep discovering more and more films that can be labeled more, but it's almost that noir is an existential reference and you can find it anywhere if you know what to look for. Certainly, what we call noir and what we define as noir has spread. In my opinion, maybe spread a little too broadly and generally, and so we sneak under the noir label some films that I might not agree should be there. Any film in black and white that has a shadow that's a little menacing, we could say, oh, well, there's a noir element, let's call it a film noir. <laughs> but I think... <clears throat> What you're saying about its mobility, it migrates. And so noir can be spotted in a lot of places. And I think that has kept it current and it has made it in some ways easy to identify. It's not that noir is so subtle. We get it. We, get, we see what can be defined as a noir motif. Okay, so let's wrap up now with... Um Tell us about uh, an upcoming project that you're working on, um, a book about a certain specific time in uh, film history. Yes, I'm, I'm now working on um, a book of monumental length. If I keep going at the right I am, it's going to be thousands of pages, but it, I'm going to have to cut it. Uh, Hollywood in the 50s. Everything uh, from the blacklist to uh, the foundation of American International, the exploitation films, everything. And of course, part of that will be film noir in the 50s, which in many cases I prefer to film noir in the 40s. The, the, most of my favorite noir films are from the 50s. So I grew up in the 50s. I have an identification with the period and the tone of the period. And noir in that time is great. It's, it's at the end of its run, but sometimes at the end of the run you get the most elaborate and most confident statements. Think of films like Touch of Evil and Odds Against Tomorrow. Those are magnificent summations of the classic noir style. So I, I'll definitely definitely be including uh, film noir in that in the book. But it's not only about noir, it's about everything else, too. Everything you ever wanted to know about the 50s and can find here in one handy source if I manage to complete thousands of pages uh, by pub date, which I'm hoping to be 2020. Great, and I'm, I'm sure you'll be dealing a lot with the development and the um, the fall at that time of the studio system, which by the end of the 50s was was really on its ropes and about to collapse. Oh, a absolutely, and that's in many ways the, the basic theme and through line in the book, just what you said, the fall of the system. It was over. This was the, this was the curtain call, the end of a cycle or a movement or a historical period, you find the most interesting artifacts. Sounds great. We'll, we'll be very much looking forward to that. So, okay, Foster Hurst, thanks very much for joining us uh, here on Wartalk. Thank you.
We are joined now by Film Noir Foundation President Eddie Muller. The Noir City Festivals for 2018 kick off this week in San Francisco at Noir City 16 with the theme of Film Noir from A to B. What's been your approach in deciding which movies to present this year? Well, we uh, we had some pretty good luck um, last year in Los Angeles when we when we tried the A and B uh, double bills, and you know, I, I guess really my my motivation in doing this is I want I want people to understand that a B film is not um, you know a type of film necessarily, or, or or as I always say, it's not a pejorative you know definition of a film oh that's that's just a b film you know i mean they they were shorter lower budgeted films to play the bottom half of double bills back in the old days when a night at the movies meant two films you were going to see two movies right and as everybody who follows noir knows a a lot of the filmmakers who really turned out to be the the stars of noir you know the anthony manns and the joe lewis's and guys like that um you know, got their starts making the B films. So we're always on the lookout for unheralded B movies that maybe have slipped through the cracks. Uh, and, and I love the idea of trying to recreate the traditional night at the movies with, you know, a genuine A film and and then a B, coupling it with a B. But... Um, What's different this year in San Francisco than any festival we've done before um, is that I'm showing the films in chronological order. So that not only are you seeing like genuine um, B, I mean A and B double bills um, as they would have appeared, you're seeing them in the order year by year so that if you go to the whole thing, if you buy a passport and see the whole thing, you will really get a feel for the the rise and the the cresting of the wave, if you will, and and um, and then maybe I don't want to say it's decline, but uh, you know the the last couple of films look a little different than the 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 ones in the middle of the festival because the the noir look had started to tail off a little bit at the end. So I'm not saying it's a history lesson or anything like that, but. I think that people who come for the whole run are going to are going to get um, something extra out of it that people who drop in and see a few films, uh, you know, they're just going to enjoy the films for what they are. Uh, the total experience is something else. You got to see them all for that. A common theme with a lot of B movies back in the day, I guess, noir or other styles or genres of movies too, was a lot of times they were sort of a proving ground for younger directors or actors or writers. As you mentioned, some of the great noir directors started in um, in B movies early on. So there are a few of those in uh, in this festival too, right? Where you've got some really familiar faces or familiar people working in these smaller B movies right when they were starting out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's funny that you say it was a proving ground. I just uh, I just came back from Atlanta where I was shooting some new episodes of Noir Alley, and that's exactly how I describe. <laughs> B movies in one of my introductions, yes. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when we program these festivals, Hagai, we're always, you know, I'm I'm always looking for things that we haven't done before, but also very mindful of going back to what the audiences really seem to enjoy. You know, so, you know, last year I really appreciated that the audience – 
went with my, you know, really coloring outside the lines and uh, showing a lot of newer films and, and just sort of tracking the whole development of heist movies, um, you know, through all these decades. So I guess there is a precedent for my doing things in chronological order, but um, that was a totally different kind of experience. And and I know that some people are like, this doesn't mean you're going to start showing new movies. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I, I already knew at that point that this year I was going to go back and be very traditional about it. But when you do that, you, you always want to find the surprising little things that nobody's seen before, like, uh, you know, Quiet Please Murder. Um, you know, the, the William Cameron Menzies movie, Address Unknown, is pretty fantastic. The... Uh, Jealousy, the Gustav Machiavelli film, is uh, is pretty amazing for its time. It's like an experimental movie suddenly appearing at Republic Pictures. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy all that stuff. And and what I love about doing the B films is, you know, you can you can take a chance because if you, if the person doesn't like it, it's like it's, it's sixty five minutes. You know, it's okay. Cool your jets. It's it's not going to last for three hours. Like when you get stuck in a movie today that you don't like, and it's like, Jesus, this thing is really two hours and 29 minutes? I mean, oh my God. <laughs> right, even before the final credits start. Yeah, that, which hours. is a 15 minutes, you know. Right. Love those people. I mean, I'm a, you know, obviously I'm a total movie devotee and very respectful of it, but I mean, seriously, if you think I'm going to sit in the movie theater till the very last credit runs anymore, it's like, Good Lord, they're thanking like the chiropractor of the caterer now, you know, right. <laughs> already. The one of the titles that's really fun in this uh, festival that you're showing this year, I talked a little bit about it with Alan, uh, with Alan Rohde last year on uh, episode two of this podcast. And we were talking about Noir City Hollywood from last year. As you mentioned, Quiet Please Murder, which is yeah. about as good a title as you can get for a B-movie. That just <laughs> yeah. sounds really enticing. Like, I definitely want to see that movie, whatever it's Well, about. so you, you have not seen that film yet. Right. I haven't seen it. I'm really okay. looking forward to it. Okay. You're, you're in for a treat. And, of course, it's called Quiet Please Murder because most of it takes place in a library. So, I mean, I know going in, as soon as I saw that movie. And, you know, I showed that movie sight unseen in, in Hollywood last year because I just... You know, you you take a chance because, you know, I don't know if you have all those, um, the Hollywood studio books, you know, the history of, right? The right. history of Universal, the history of Paramount, the history of Fox, all that stuff. You know, sometimes I just, I, I pour over those things because it's like, well, look, here's a movie that I've never even heard of. And it sounds kind of interesting. And it's great because we're in a position to just ask for it. And, and, you know, if they come back and say, yeah, we have a really nice looking 35 millimeter print of that, it's like, okay, let's show it, you know. And I, I mean, I, I, I will, you know, I'm not going to say in the program notes, I've never seen this movie. <laughs> uh, but I'll stand up in front of an audience and say it. You know, the night we showed that film, I said, I, I'm glad you're all here because we're all going to see this together for the first time, you know. And it... it paid off i mean that was really a, a swell movie it's funny that I'm, I'm saying this now because earlier today i was uh talking to james elroy because we're we're doing a show at noir city in denver in march and we haven't programmed it yet 
<laughs> so we were talking on the phone today about what, what we were going to show, and James did the exact same thing. He says, Eddie, what about um, this film based on a great novel by Bill Ballinger, Portrait in Smoke? And I, Oh, yeah, Wicked as They Come. He goes, yeah, yeah, let's show that. And I say, well, it's, it's pretty good. And he goes, yeah, but I've never seen it. I really want to see it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's not, sometimes it's not that complicated. And I'm telling you, Haggai, if the studio says we've got a really beautiful, pristine print of the film, that really uh, that will sway me. You know, just, just the, the opportunity to show really beautiful, uh, original 35 millimeter prints of some of these movies at, at this stage, it's like done. I'll, I'll show that. That sounds great. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the restoration that's going to be showing? Yeah, the same thing. Uh, we showed the man who cheated. You know, I showed the man who cheated himself in San Francisco back in, um, I'm going to say, I think it was the fourth festival. And I did not have it. Uh, I could not find a print of it when we did the first festival because that was all movies set in San Francisco. And I really wanted to show uh, the man who cheated himself, uh, but we couldn't find the print. And then by the time the fourth festival came around, we found it, and I've shown it a few times. It's a good film, and and then I pulled it out again um, to show it in L.A. in April, just because I felt it was time to check back in with that film to see to see what it was like, what condition it was in. And it wasn't good. I mean, it, it, we were lucky to get it through the projector. It had pretty advanced vinegar syndrome. So the, so the celluloid was really warped. And I said, you know, this, this is a movie that we may have to restore. And so we, um, we talked to people at Fox uh, who, who have the movie, who possess the print, but Fox no longer has the rights to the film. You've heard me tell this story before, I know. Uh, you know, it things get very tangled when studios no longer have the rights, but they're the only ones that have the material, right? So Fox had a, a negative. I, I can't remember right now whether it was a negative or a dupe negative of the film, and very kindly, uh, there's a fellow over there named Sean Belston that we've been working with for years. Uh, he very kindly, you know, they don't have to do this. He said, you know, well, we'll deposit what we have at UCLA. And uh, once that's done, then we can go in and restore it because they're not going to make a claim on it because we know, you know, we do our searches and all this stuff and we know they don't have, own the rights to it. So, um, yeah, so we were able to do the restoration and it looks absolutely fantastic. It's it's perfect. It looks like the day it came out. And, and we will be uh, putting that out on a Blu-ray with Flickr Alley later this year fantastic really looking forward to seeing that and it sounds like with um since you started the restoration just last year that's a it sounds like a fairly quick turnaround for the restorations well, that the FNF has done sometimes they take years right well um generally the years this is why i i don't really like to announce what we're doing <laughs> until it's well underway <clears throat> because what can ha the years part is all on the front end. I mean, once you once you get the material, that it's trying to get the materials, and then 
if they're if you're sourcing them overseas and then you get them and then you have to do an evaluation i mean this is like what happened with too late for tears that took so long is because we ended up having to construct it from various elements that we you know we had to find three different source elements for that and with woman on the run we got a beautiful 35 dupe negative from the bfi but the soundtrack was unusable and so you know you have to like fall back and figure out plan B and proceed, you know. Uh, with the man who cheated himself, that dupe neg was was great. Uh, it, it was pretty fast turnaround. I mean, people might be surprised to know that probably you spend more time uh, in a restoration on the sound than you do on the picture. If you get really good material to start with, uh, like the man who cheated himself was, then you're going to spend a lot of time making sure the soundtrack is really perfect and is as clean as it can be and there's no popping and hissing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it was much, much easier than something like Too Late for Tears, which was really a, like a masterwork on the part of the guys who did the restoration because it, it had to be cobbled together from so many sources. Do you want to mention any of the other films here? The uh, like the Destiny and Flesh and Fantasy uh, double features. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So, well, you know, this year what was in, what was intriguing is once I hit on the idea of well, let's do you know a series of double bills that kind of uh, leads us through the noir era. I I resisted in in some cases I resisted going for like the obvious titles that were landmarks in the development of film noir but sometimes i i did you know like uh obviously this gun for hire and the blue dahlia and i would say the big heat are like big titles now it might come as a surprise to people to realize you know i have not shown this gun for hire or the big heat at noir city before and when i showed the blue dahlia it was um uh, the the Annex Festival uh, at the Balboa Theater. When when we did the show uh, North City Four at the Palace of Fine Arts, we also did a, a side festival at the Balboa that was all films from 1946. And so the Blue Dahlia showed once there, but it's never shown at the Castro. So uh, I, I hit on some of those major titles that we hadn't were familiar, but we hadn't shown them before. And then I really wanted to show some unusual stuff. I've, I've wanted to show The Accused for years, and now that the Library of Congress did a really great restoration of it, we're finally going to be able to show that. Uh, we're obviously showing The Unsuspected because uh, Alan's going to come up and introduce that because of his Michael Curtiz book that he is just uh, getting rave reviews about. I'm real happy about that. And... Uh, the, the big one that I really love that I think San Francisco will go nuts for is uh, Flesh and Fantasy on the Double Bill of Destiny. Um, you probably know this, that they were once, they were intended to be one movie. Uh, that the Duvivier, Julien Duvivier, uh, half of Destiny was one of the four stories contained in Flesh and Fantasy. And now Flesh and Fantasy is an anthology of three stories and Destiny is a standalone film with an additional, I think, 28 minutes added to the movie that's directed by uh, Reginald Laborde and, and written by Roy Chancellor. It's not even, you know, it's a totally different rethinking of what Duvivier had done. 
So, I mean, I kind of brazenly say, you know, for the first time we're, we're showing it, you know, complete so that people can see the whole thing. They can kind of, they can't see exactly what Duvivier's vision was. Uh, you know, it's not remade or anything or put, put back together properly, but you can see everything that he directed and you get a sense of what he, what he was trying to do. I'm very excited about that. I, I love flesh and fantasy. I just think it's a, a really, really beautiful, mesmerizing film. And and the part he directed of Destiny is nuts. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. And uh, it's fantastic. And I, I can't even imagine what people would have thought of that if they had just seen it the way he intended it. And it was supposed to start flesh and fantasy. I can't even imagine what audiences in 1945 would have made of that that film it's so bizarre <laughs> and whenever i say that it's like i can't wait to show this in san francisco <laughs> because, because the audiences there really really get it james elroy told me today on the phone he said when he was when he did noir city he said that was the best audience he ever saw the just period the best audience he ever saw for anything Movies, whatever. He said the audience was just so hip and so enthusiastic and so uh, willing to, to have a good time. And uh, it, it was great. I really loved hearing him say that. When he was there for The Prowler, you mean for the restoration that you guys did? That? Uh, I guess I guess so. I think James was uh, has been in Noir City twice. Okay. Yeah, it was, the, it was The Prowler. That was the night, yeah, at the Castro. Because he also appeared at the Palace of Fine Arts. I think he showed split second or something like that at the palace of fine arts he, he was begging me to invite him back to do something else. <laughs> we have we have a good time always fun when elroy is there for sure oh, oh yeah you just got to be careful you know <laughs> to go too far all right families beware or people with <laughs> sensitive yeah. uh sensitive ears i think james will probably do something with us in la uh, you know, uh, later in April, I think James will come to LA and we'll we'll do some we'll cook something up. Great, and as you mentioned, the audience in uh, Denver this year will get a chance to see him. So that should be a yeah. Fun. I'm I'm real curious how that's going to go. I mean, it's <laughs> winter in Denver, right? I mean, okay, I'll I'll wear my uh, warm clothes, but yeah. So Denver and uh, and Boston, of course, is new this year as well. Well, it's funny, guy. All this stuff is happening like at one time. I mean, I'm just gearing up to to do Noir City in San Francisco, and I'm writing all kinds of stuff and doing interviews in advance for Noir City in Seattle, and then I'm programming Noir City in Denver. And then, as I'm talking to James on the phone, uh, you know, I get an email from the guys in Boston who are like, "Let's start putting the program together for Boston," you know. So it's it's good. You know, it's a, it's absolutely fantastic. And what's really good about it is that it's it's mileage for these movies in a very, very real way. This because the studios still see like, wow, you know, we're getting bookings out of these films. That's that's vitally important to show them that there is an audience that will leave their homes and pay an admission price. <laughs> You know, not at a museum or something. It's at a movie theater to go and see these older films. That is, uh, I, I can't tell you how critical that is. And that just helps with getting, getting more of the prints for future festivals and the years to exactly. come. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and you know, it's it'll be our 20th anniversary in L.A. this April, 16 years in San Francisco. Um, you know, we, we have a, this festival has a track record. And it is a track record that impresses the studios. And, you know, the, the odds of them striking a print or something like, you know, when we did the Christmas show in San Francisco, uh, you know, Sony that owns the Columbia Library, they, they made that print of alias Boston Blackie for us. You know, I, I had said, oh, that's a Christmas movie, and I'd seen it somewhere along the line, and I said, this is a pretty fun movie, and it's set at Christmas. I'm going to book your, you know, bookmark that, I mean, for uh, for North City Christmas. And, you know, two years ago, I told them at Sony, I, I would book that film if you if there's a good print of it. And they said, well, we're not real happy with the one we have. We'll, we'll, we'll get around to a new one. And, and they did. And uh, I think that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. So that's another little factor that we bear in mind when we're doing things. You know, it's like, um, well, for example, um, I have bugged Paramount <laughs> for, I'm going to say, 14 years about I Walk Alone, right? And, and I showed it once. There was a 35-millimeter print. I don't know where that 35-millimeter print is now. I think it was in a vault in London, and I talked them into, this was a long time ago, into sending that. And that, that print was shown once and put back in the vault, and I don't think it's ever come back out. So I Walk Alone is a pretty, you know, big stars, very, very rare title to, to find. And, uh, I, you know, I bugged Paramount, Andrea Callas, who, you know, runs the, is head of the whole archive there, bugged her enough that she finally said, I got news for you, we're restoring it, you know, digitally, but it's going to be restored. And, and if you want it in time for San Francisco, we'll bust our butts to get it. And, um, you know, so, yes, I'm booking that. It's the only digital uh, product that we are showing. Everything else is 35 millimeter, but Andrea, the the work that they do on their digital restorations is spectacular. If, I don't know if you've seen their restoration of Sunset Boulevard, but it is tremendous. The digital restoration is tremendous. Uh, you know, digital isn't always a bad word. Digital is bad when it it's an excuse to be sloppy and cut corners and and be lazy, you know, but if you do it right and you're painstaking about it, as I'm sure they are with, uh, I walk alone, then, then I'm, I'm excited to show it. So, um, that's the, that's the kind of stuff that's happening now. You know, I mean, we, we, the film Noir foundation drove that. I mean, I walk alone has been digitally restored because I was a pain in the ass to Paramount about it. Sounds great. We'll be looking forward to that and to everything else coming up at the festival and then um, all throughout the year at all the other North City Satellite Festivals. It's, so, it's fun. It's, 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 it, it's a lot of traveling. <laughs> but, uh, but it's good because it's so, it's so great to uh, doing all these festivals to meet all these people who are so deeply into this stuff. It's, a, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, that, that's what really keeps me going. If I was just traveling around and, you know, the audiences were like, prove it, 
you know, uh, it's okay, you know. But the audiences are fantastic, right? So that really, uh, that motivates me incredibly. Excellent. So we'll be looking forward to all of that coming up. And uh, Eddie Miller, thanks again for joining us here on War Talk. Right. Always, always my pleasure, guy. Thanks so much for doing this. And I'll see you, uh, I'll see you at North City. Absolutely. We'll be there uh, with bells on. Fantastic. All great, right. great. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks again to Foster Hirsch and Eddie Muller for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media, at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr, and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes, or you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk.